Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. I am Timothy George, the Dean of the Divinity School and usually the host, but today a special host for a special series on faith, work, and economics, Dr. Mark Devine. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. We're so happy to welcome to our campus this week Dr. Russell Moore, he is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm Mark Devine, professor of divinity here at Beeson Divinity School. We're so glad that you've uh, come today, Dr. Moore. We appreciate your work. Welcome to the Beeson podcast. Good to be with you. I've really had a good time here at Beeson over the past couple days. Well, we've been focusing on work uh, this week. I think for many of us and for many pastors, when they uh, look at their congregations, work in their lives is uh, viewed by them as a very negative part of, of their lives. They they talk about what uh, a drudgery their, their work is. Uh, much of the work that is done is monotonous. Can you help us speak uh, to that view of work as we lead our congregations? Well, I think we can have too low a view of work, and I also think we can have too high a view of work. I think that we can we can tend to see work as drudgery uh, in the way that some people would with uh, just working to get to the next weekend or working to get to retirement. Uh, that's not a biblical view of, of work. Uh, God created human beings to work, to cultivate, to, to create. Uh, but we can also have too high a view of work where we think of ourselves only as as working people, and we can put our entire identity into who I am vocationally uh, in a way that doesn't do justice to, to who we are as persons, which can lead to a lot of disappointment and, and distress as people get to the point where they think when I retire or when I'm, when I'm laid off or, uh, or when my, my job changes, who am I now? And so I think having a good balanced view of who I am in Christ, but also that that works itself out in my, my daily labors is necessary. When you speak about work, I've noticed that you're very interested in relating the future to our present work. Talk to us about the biblical roots of such an approach to work uh, and why such a perspective, a future perspective of work is important. Well, because I think if we realize where we're headed, what the goal is, then that's going to tell us what's ultimately important. And so if we think that what God has waiting for us is simply worship, uh, in the way that we define worship in terms of a worship service. So that what uh, life for us is going to be is singing and gazing into a light. Uh, then, uh, then we're going to have a, a sense of work that doesn't, where work is simply going to be a matter of survival. Even when we think about that language of rest, uh, we think about eternal rest. And of course we know that, that that is what we're headed toward is eternal rest. But rest biblically is an idleness. Uh, rest is used uh, in in the Old Testament to talk about a a freedom from from enemies. Uh, Solomon has rest because all of the enemies are subdued. It doesn't mean a lack of activity. And so we have to understand that we're we're made to be the sort of people who are going to be doing things. Jesus says that you will be joint heirs. Uh, you will rule and reign with him. Uh, you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. That's activity. And so what that means then is that if God is preparing us for the life to come, then 
he's preparing those parts of our life that are going to um, going to come to fruition then, which isn't just what we're doing when we're reading our Bibles. It isn't just what we're doing when we're singing in our church services, but it's also the way that we're, we're serving and leading uh, in our work lives. Those things aren't accidental. They're preparing us for something else. I think we get that when we're when we're thinking about our lives, you know, you look back in your life and you say, you know, if I'm looking at God's providence, I, I know why I was working as a teenager uh, in the produce department at that grocery store. I can see what was happening. That was really preparing me for something later in my life. Or I can, I can see why um, I took that job at the pharmacy and in college. But I think sometimes we don't we don't pay attention to the fact that that can be true of, of an entire lifespan right now preparing us for, for the future. I've also noticed that you seem to have explored the relationship between the incarnation and Christology and work in interesting ways and, to me, surprising ways. You explore that how it's significant that uh, Jesus came conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was an infant. He was a boy. He was a carpenter. How does that matter to workers today? How is that part of God's redemptive plan and and working among us? Because God is saving us as human beings, and Jesus is the the ultimate human being, the Alpha and Omega of our uh, humanity, uh, and Jesus is active. I mean, Jesus says, I am working, and my Father is working. I watch my Father's activity, and I work with him. So working is important. But it also tells us how we work. If we're becoming Christ-like, then that means that Jesus says the one who is greatest is the one who serves. And if we just take serve and we don't look at, at that word serve uh, Christologically in terms of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing, then I think we're going to have a very weak sense of, of serve, where serving just means sort of uh, passivity. Jesus' serving isn't passive at all. When Jesus is serving his disciples, what's he doing? He's, he's standing up, he's breaking bread, explaining and teaching the meaning of, of the breaking of this bread. This is my body. He's, he's pouring out wine. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. He's washing their feet. And the activity of washing the feet of his disciples, which is an act of servanthood, is also an activity of kingship. He's he's teaching as he does this, and says when Simon Peter says, "You're not gonna, you're not gonna wash my feet," Jesus teaches him why it is necessary for the one who is serving him uh, to be leading him in that way. So when we see that, I think that changes the way that we that we see the way that we that we work and how our work matters. And if we think of work only in terms of status, where the work that matters is only the work that carries with it uh, the most immediate economic benefit uh, in terms of uh, financial remuneration or the most uh, social cachet, uh, who's in charge, who's the, who's, who's, who's uh, work and vocation is the most honored at some particular point in time, then we're really not going to have a, a godly perspective of our work lives. Well, that leads me to uh, recall some interesting things that, that you have said about the importance of our work for the culture, contrasting, although really embracing both, uh, a top-down way of understanding how culture is impacted, but really challenging us that uh, culture also 
is impacted from the bottom up and that that's uh, very important for us to recognize uh, and focus on. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, I mean, there are some people who will say uh, the way that we need to affect culture is to affect those elite levels of culture, and that then is going to trickle down to the rest of society. There's a sense in which that is true. If you ignore those elite shapers of opinion, and if we don't cultivate Christians to be able to, to speak in those areas, then that is going to the, the, the wrong things are going to be trickling down. But it isn't a one-way uh, situation. Culture also bubbles up. I mean, just, just use, for, for an example, music. Uh, and think about in American popular culture, where has, has the music that has driven American culture come from? Well, it's come from uh, African-American uh, spirituals of those who were enslaved uh, in the antebellum era. That affected American music. Uh, the, uh, the the jazz uh, the jazz genre uh, originates uh, among uh, among uh, people who were not culturally powerful at the time. Blues out of my home state of Mississippi, uh, coming from people who were not culturally uh, powerful, were in most cases impoverished but who were able to come up with a genre of music that that completely reshaped everything country music is coming out of uh out of uh, what used to be called hillbilly uh, music, also not coming up from cultural influencers, but coming coming up hip hop, uh, coming out of urban communities of those who were alienated from and disenfranchised in many ways from elite culture makers, that bubbled up to the mainstream of American culture. Now, it had driving it in many cases those elite levers. They identified it and, and, and in many cases monetized it, but it was, it was filtering up from those places. And we think about that in, in hymnody within Christian churches. There are some hymns and songs that have come from uh, the music industry, but those don't tend to be the, the hymns and songs that stay very long in Christian hymnody. Those tend to be the songs that are coming out of the experience of local congregations and that then move around. That's, that's how culture works. Uh, in both of those directions. So we're, we need to be cultivating and working not only at the elite level, but also at the, at the popular level, at the grassroots level, in order to, to bring about that which is pleasing to God. It strikes me that, that much of what I've, I've heard from you over these last couple of days, that your approach seems to be less I'll help you bear up in your work, more to saying the reality of the meaning and significance of your your work is taught to us by God, and it's so far beyond just bearing up. One of the comments you made was a snarky comment uh, about who's going to care a hundred years from now uh, who was the employee of the month, and you sort of connected this to your focus on the future with all work is preparatory uh, and with God's providence in, in our work. Unpack some of that for us. Well, when I say who's going to care who's the employee of the, of the month, what I, what I don't mean is it doesn't matter whether or not one is the employee of the month and, uh, or, or to say it doesn't matter to recognize those, those good employees. What I mean is that if what we do is we affix all of our identity on, on those signifiers of what work is recognized uh, and therefore what work is valuable, then we really don't have a big enough sweep of time. And so what that does is it tends to drive those people whose work is good and God-honoring and valuable but doesn't seem to be valuable at the time. 
to a kind of, uh, well, work matters, but my work doesn't matter, to a kind of despair. And it also drives those people whose work is valued. Uh, people do immediately recognize what is happening to eventually get to a point where they realize, uh, I'm mortal, I'm going to die, uh, and so what, what will it matter? And so there's this sense of um, angst that comes about with that, and that hits a lot of people in midlife uh, when they spend their time working uh, their way up and everything seems future to them, and so I'm going to get this promotion and then I'm going to get that promotion, and then they get what they wanted. Uh, and they turn around and say, wait a minute, but here I am. I've, I've arrived at what I always wanted to do. What now? Well, if you have a, a, just a purely materialistic, naturalistic view of your lifespan, then that's a really good question to ask. Uh, but if you have an understanding of yourself in Christ, then what now uh, is a lot that, that you have no idea or, or conception of. And so keeping that, that long view in mind, I think, keeps us from either just baptizing the, the work that is glamorous, and it also keeps us from, from the sort of despair that comes from just seeing ourselves as in this perpetual working wheel. You also said that in your, your reading of the Gospels, sometimes it seems that the only one without a Messiah complex is the actual Messiah. And you also say that Jesus is busy staffing up his administration, both striking and arresting uh, comments. What do you mean by those? Well, I mean, with the second one, there was a time when um, there was a potential that I would be taking a, a new job uh, that would have this job uh, with, a, with a certain level of responsibility. And uh, as I was thinking about that and praying about that, I had a little sheet of paper. Who would I want uh, to go with me? Uh, who are the sorts of people that I would want on my team if I were uh, to be in that position? And I had a little uh, notepad where I had these names uh, listed out. Well, I think that's that's wise if someone's going into to any sort of a job. The possibility is to say, if I have the, the responsibility to hire, uh, who am I going to have on my team and what are they going to be doing? Well, that's essentially what Jesus is doing. Uh, he is preparing a kingdom, and it's a kingdom where he not only has subjects, but it's also a kingdom where he has joint heirs, as Romans uh, 8 says, in which he is giving people responsibility. As my Father has given me authority, I give you authority. So that's what he's doing, is he's, he's preparing uh, people to rule and reign with him in this kingdom, and he's preparing them through the experiences that they have right now, conforming them into the image of Christ, which we tend to get when it applies to our spirituality and when it applies to our morality. But sometimes we don't get that in terms of our vocation, is that there's a connection between uh, the, the vocational experiences that you are having now and the sort of rule that, that you have in the future. Now, what that doesn't mean, I said that one time, and there was a, a truck driver in my congregation who is he's driving that truck, but he hates, he, he really was worn out from driving the truck. And he said, oh, my words are you're saying I'm sentenced to be a truck driver forever. Not at all. What I'm saying is that the particular experiences that you're having uh, in that are in some way preparing you in terms of your character, in terms of your wisdom, in terms of your discernment, uh, to be able then to rule and reign in a way that you can't see or, or, or understand right now. Dr. Moore, you have also 
spend a lot of time examining the workplace environment for believers and others in the wake of of court decisions like the Hobby Lobby case, uh, thinking about religious liberty and the impact of decisions that have been made uh, upon religious liberty. How do you respond to that to that case, and how how can pastors uh, help help uh, uh, their congregations understand the terrain uh, that we're having to traverse these days? Well, I'm really concerned about the Hobby Lobby decision. Uh, I was glad, of course, that Hobby Lobby won that decision, and we had we had uh, we had uh, spent a lot of time advocating for Hobby Lobby to win. But what concerns me is that we have seen religious liberty, and especially religious liberty as it applies to the workplace, become a culture war issue uh, in a way that it wasn't uh, not not very long ago. That's that's a bad thing for American society. We have enough culture war issues. Religious liberty shouldn't be one of them because religious liberty is is in the common good of all people. And so uh, we really need to have not only conservative evangelicals and conservative Roman Catholics and others standing up for religious liberty, we also need uh, progressive secularists standing up for religious liberty because it's in their interest as well. And one of the things that, that happened in the Hobby Lobby decision that I think is unfortunate is this uh, this understanding of saying, well, Hobby Lobby uh, can't have religious convictions, corporations can't have uh, religious convictions, and so we don't want uh, corporations uh, to to operate from those uh, sorts of moral convictions because that's imposing their their views upon other people. In reality, though, no one actually believes that. We all expect corporations, which of course are made up of people and directed by people, to operate in a moral framework. If if all that we if all if we believe that a corporation or a business should simply be about uh, maximizing profits for stakeholders, then we would not uh, have any concern at all when uh, BP has a, a an, an oil uh, spill accident uh, in the Gulf of Mexico affecting my home region. We would say, well, uh, that's that's uh, the cost of doing business, and and that wouldn't be a moral question at all. If BP were to say, ah, it's not our problem, let the government clean it up. Of course, we expect them to have an environmental uh, conscience uh, when it comes to this. Uh, we we uh, celebrate. When Starbucks uh, will come in and say we're we're wanting to be very good to our employees by making sure that we're giving maternity leave and making sure that we're paying just wages, we consider that to be not only a good business decision but also a good moral decision being made. And the same thing is happening here. We have a company where you have the owners of this company who are coming into the marketplace saying we're not just – um, economic beings. We have in Hobby Lobby a, a group of owners who are saying we're coming into the marketplace not just as statistics on a ledger. We're coming in as as persons who have uh, beliefs and who have convictions. And those convictions show up in everything from closing on Sunday uh, to uh, making sure that they're paying their their workers above what the uh what the, the the requirements of the law are and to uh and to make sure that they're cultivating uh, the the sort of environment that they believe is is friendly to their workers and to their families now that doesn't mean everybody does everything the way that the greens do at hobby lobby 
or the way that any other business. But we want we want people who are coming into the marketplace to act according to a morally shaped conscience, even if we disagree with what that conscience uh, is. When I go into Whole Foods and they're talking about the fact that our Food is locally sourced. We're paying just wages uh, to the, the the farmers that are here. Even if I don't agree with uh, with every uh, particular thing that's going on in the background of all of this, or even if I don't think that all of that detail is necessary, I'm seeing people who are saying we're trying to live according to our moral convictions about what's just and right. I think that's a good thing uh, to have in the marketplace. And we have different understandings of what the good is. We have different understandings. We ought to have that that sense of, of freedom for people to be able to live out their lives that way without just reducing people to balance sheets. I often have uh, those I minister to in churches uh, speak, uh, you know, quite boldly about uh, identifying their gifts and their their talents that God has given them, and relating that to their calling, uh, but then complaining that the work they're involved in, you know, does not match up with those gifts and match up with that with that calling. Is that the right kind of question to ask? How are gifts related to uh, calling, and how we dis? Discharge that in the workplace. Well, to some degree, I think that is the right question to ask because you can have people who are operating in a work situation that that doesn't line up with their gifts uh, and talents in a way that's going to lead to frustration. There's going to be somebody who's not really going to be able to be to cultivate uh, because the gift set doesn't match up with their uh, with their with their uh, the expectations don't match up with their gift set. On the other hand, though, I think that if we have too high of a view of what work ought to do for us, then sometimes you wind up with people who assume, well, if my work is not always uh, fulfilling and uh, meeting my my needs for self-actualization, then that means that I'm in the wrong job. And so it's it's sort of similar to people who think that marriage ought to always be this sense of um, – hormonal exuberance and uh, romantic uh, passion all of the time. And those people are unable to have a good marriage because uh, when when the marriage has those moments of, of difficulty or just those moments of mundane life, changing diapers and taking out the garbage, then they think, well, this, this must not be my soulmate. I'm going to go find someone else. And this winds up in, in a, a tragic cycle. The same thing can happen in work life. Thank you so much, Dr. Moore. This has really been fascinating and helpful. We so appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you for joining us on the Beeson Podcast today. Good to be with you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.